Alan, your bio says you taught screenwriting in maximum security prisons. Yeah. So many questions about that. Um, what did they ask you? First question. What did these these people? I'm sure they were happy to see you. Very inquisitive. It was. Uh, what did they ask me? They. I don't think they. First of all, teaching a maximum security prison is is. Um, uh, it's scary because um, these are, you know, at least initially it's scary because they, uh, you think you're going to be surrounded by guards and there aren't any guards. So they send you in and they close the door and then there's these 100 guys and me and no guards. And I was initially terrified. And, um, but these guys were so sweet. I mean, they're not sending you, they're sending people who've earned the right to be in the workshop. And so they've, they've you know, displayed good behavior. But it was um, initially terrifying. And, um, and I got up there and I'm, you know, I'm teaching about transformation and I'm talking about uh, how one, you know, the, the story ultimately is about how one changes oneself and, or, or the protagonist experiences some kind of shift in perception. And um, they were incredibly sweet, incredibly uh, eager and grateful. And um, I can't remember any specific question, but I do remember that they had great questions and that um, there, was, there was this sort of uh, shocking level of humility with them that I don't get as much with a lot of my regular students. Sometimes you get people and they, they sort of feel like they know it all and they, but these guys had um, really incredible stories to tell. And um, there, was a, there was an openness to tell these stories, almost as if they, it almost felt like they were kind of bursting to tell these stories. And I remember we took a break. Uh, I was teaching in, um, out in the high desert at, uh, 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 I can't remember the name of the prison, but um, they kind of rushed up to me, or some of them did, at the break. And it was almost like, it was almost like, I know we've only got a little bit of time here, but there's so much I want to learn. And I've got so many questions and, and, and uh, wanting to tell me their personal stories. And it, very, very touching. It was very... It was, it was a very moving experience It's, it's uh, uh, to teach in a maximum security prison. Yeah, I find that so fascinating that you say that there was this humility and that they kind of had this openness, whereas if you were maybe teaching somewhere where, I hate to just assume, but if you think that maybe people hadn't had certain knocks in life, mm -hmm. whether they're their own fault or whether they're not, whether they're innocent or guilty, that they would be it's just interesting. I don't know if it's a class thing. I don't know if it's just life experience. I don't know what it can, what it is, but I find that fascinating. Well, that's actually what I came away with was was th this realization that you know you ever heard that saying there, but for the grace of God go I. That um, these people they they do often come from uh, uh, poverty, difficult circumstances, uh, addiction. Uh, a lot of things that are kind of beyond their control and and um, this is their lot in life there is also a lot of um, 
you know, I mean, I think I think the judicial system is is uh, racist and biased, and and I don't think it's justice for all, and um, it's kind of heartbreaking. And you you see these people who, you know, may in 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 some instances may have gotten a raw deal, uh, even if they're guilty, you know, in the sense that that they. Um, um, not just that they may not have gotten proper legal, um, you know, or decent legal representation, but that, um, you know, you see that there's a lot of people in life who are kind of screwed because of, of, of um, just the raw deal they got growing up. So um, I, I just came away with kind of like it's, it's, we got a lot to be, a lot to be grateful for, you know. So when you go back into, let's say, if you want to call it the mainstream population, I don't know what the, for lack of a better word, and you see people that come to classes or whatever, and they and they challenge different beliefs about story structure or writing or the need to take classes or whatever, do do you see that they are justified in being angry about certain things? Because sometimes you you look at how angry people get over something as innocent as screenwriting. And you say, well, what's the justification for that? You can take it or leave it. Like if you, you know, take what you like, leave the rest kind of thing. Yeah. And, and some people seem very um, dogmatic about certain things. And it, it becomes, it's almost like a fight about religion when it's just screenwriting. Right. Well, uh, I don't, you know, I, those kind of, those people don't stay very long in a class. And I also, um, I, I have no desire to argue with people or that's not true my my interest as a as a writing teacher is to get to the truth um so if somebody's arguing with me about something or or, or is staunchly holding a position uh, my question is is that true is what you're saying true let's explore that let's examine it because i have no dog in this race i don't i'm not dogmatic at all um i have um, you know, I've been teaching a long time, been writing a long time, and I've got a, uh, you know, I, I, I've, I've got um, uh, a method that I'm, that I'm teaching people, but I don't even know if I would actually call it a method, a uh, process that I'm teaching. And, um, um, but I, yeah, I, I don't really, I, I don't get into fights with people about writing. It's like, you really believe that? And you, you're, you're so, you're so staunchly, holding that that point of view well then then good how, how's it working for you you know is it is it uh, is it helping you with your writing if it is then great and if not then um you know uh, i uh, i see it a lot with writing teachers i think there are a lot of writing teachers who are um it's almost like they've got to um secure their their sort of uh place in the world by eschewing everything that isn't what they teach and that can be uh i've, I've seen it a lot where where, where the, the latest thing is that that some writing teachers say the three-act structure is dead it's um it's it's remedial um it's it it's it's not going to um it's it's going to kill uh any creativity and the problem with that is that um, they don't understand what the three-act structure is because the three-act structure is um, 
has nothing to do with plotting, in my opinion. And unfortunately, the, uh, a lot of story structure is taught by story analysts who are sort of brilliant left brain, left brainers, and are, are really adept at deconstructing a masterpiece. And, and sort of the implication is that now that we've deconstructed this, you should go off and write your masterpiece. And while there's tremendous amount of value in, in, in studying film theory, or, 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 uh, or, you know, uh, film theory, because it's that, that's, that's, you know, deconstructing Casablanca or Citizen Kane is, is going to help you understand, uh, uh, how a story was built to some degree, but it's not going to teach you process. It's not going to teach you how to organize your ideas. When you look at a movie like Casablanca, and uh, you think about the Epstein brothers writing, uh, you know, or structuring this this movie. They, um, I'm interested in in the process. I'm interested in how did somebody come to write this. In other words, you can you can sort of like just because you deconstruct something, it's, so, it's like vivisection. You can't you can't take something dead and look at all of its existing parts, and then and then reanimate it. It's not going to come back to life. And so just because you can break down this thing into its its sort of separate parts doesn't mean you're going to uncover the mystery of what the thing actually is. In other words, story structure is really the DNA of your protagonist's transformation. Does that make sense? Story structure is the DNA of a protagonist's transformation. It's not you know, in the midpoint, there should be a, um, a reversal. Like, I don't even know what that means. You hear it all the time with, with uh, uh, these story analysts, that there should be a reversal, but what the hell is, does, um, you know, does, does It's a Wonderful Life have a, a reversal? That's where Mr. Potter offers Jimmy Stewart a job and Jimmy Stewart says, no, I don't know. I, I don't, I think of, I think of story structure as, uh, not a conceptual model, something you can figure out, but it's it's more of a uh, uh, experiential model. In other words, your protagonist goes through a series of experiences that lead to a transformation. And uh, I think of story structure as an immutable paradigm for a spiritual transformation. Okay, it's immutable, it never changes, but that doesn't make it, that doesn't, um, that doesn't limit your creativity. That actually paradoxically opens your creativity. In other words, when, when you really understand what story structure is, it moves you beyond your limited imagination of what your story is. I always tell my writers, your idea of your story is not the whole story. It's not that it's incorrect, it's that it's incomplete. And so if you were to distill story structure to three words, it would be desire, surrender, transformation. So show me any story. There's, you're going to have a character that wants something, desire. You're going to have a character that lets go of the meaning they made out of their goal, surrender. You're going to have a character that experiences transformation. In other words, a shift in perception, a reframing of their relationship to their goal. Show me a story that doesn't have that, and I'll show you a story that doesn't work, you know, or is really experimental. Okay, but um, that's where that's where when people 
you know, I, I have, I, it happens not when I teach so much as, as if I do a lecture to, to a bunch of people, there's always the, the, the sort of the contrarian, the person who's like, you know, I don't agree with that. And I'm like, that's great. Let's, let's talk about that. But it's, it, it, it's, it's, um, it's usually about something that they're trying to work out with themselves and it's not really it's 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 uh it's usually that they i don't know it's usually like they want they're looking for some kind of fight rather than they're actually uh sincerely interested in in deepening their process so do you think that teaching screenwriting or these books or whatever is is selling false hope that's one one criticism of of some of what we've seen, and I don't see why that would be selling false hope if that's something someone enjoys and they love the process of creating. Okay, I love this because uh, I believe that my job as a writing teacher is to facist, facilitate writers in uh, finding the story that lives within them and um, stay out of the result. In other words, when you get into the result, that's when you get tripped up. That's when you don't uh, really write from your heart. That's when you don't write something that's actually going to be meaningful to other people. And so that, it, I always think of writing as a two-tiered process. The first tier is you have to write it for yourself. And then the second tier is once you've written it for your, your, yourself, once you've written that stuff that you think, oh my God, I can't show this to anybody. It's way too personal. Even if it's fiction, especially if it's fiction. It's, there's, there's going to be, you've got to have some skin in the game. You've got to be invested in this thing that you're writing. You've got to let go of this idea that, um, is it going to sell? We can't, you know, I remember when I, I wrote, um, my first novel, I, uh, I woke up one day and I was like, I've been writing for a long time. I was making a living as a stand-up comic, but I've been writing for a long time and I hadn't sold anything. And I thought, well, you know, let me do the math here. Clearly, I must be a mediocre writer if I've been writing for this long and haven't sold anything. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to stop writing for the marketplace, whatever that is, and I'm going to write something for myself. I'm going to write something that really means something to me. And I wrote a story that, uh, and I wrote it really quickly. I wrote a novel called Diamond Dogs and um, got it through 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 uh, this this lawyer friend of mine got it to an agent. She auctioned it a, a, a week later for a, a ridiculous amount of money, and then it became a bestseller and it it won a bunch of awards, and and it was it was the first time I realized that um, I don't know anything, and when I try and you know that's why I say my idea my story is never the whole story my idea of of who's going to like this or who's going to like that is I, I don't I can't control the result. We none of us have any control over the result. But what we do have control over is understanding that we're all unique. We all have something valuable to say and I really believe that as a writer and as a writing teacher. And so I want to help writers. I can't predict who's some of my students have gone on to become best-selling authors, showrunners, a-list a screenwriters, I didn't know who they were going to be. But the, the ingredient that I think um, uh, is, is most valuable isn't talent, whatever that is. 
It's uh, a willingness to learn. It's a humility. It's a willingness to be curious about the story that lives within you. You know, it's, it's, it's the humility to put it on the page uh, while staying out of the result. That's really hard for people. That's, that's the really challenging, um, that's the really challenging task. That's being a writer is a marathon. It's not a sprint. And if you expect immediate results, you know, you're, you might not stay in the game long enough to experience the fruits of your labor. You were doing comedy, stand-up comedy. You were right. able to make a living at it. Why transition to writing? What was it? Because so many people come to LA <laughs> for that comic stream. That's I'm sure a great it's not question. easy. I, I, I miss stand-up comedy so much. Um, boy, I, that's, a, that's a really, that's, that's a loaded question to unpack because there's a lot of reasons. But the, the really simple reason is because uh, I, I, I didn't love going on the road. And I got, you know, when, when, when I sold my first novel and they backed up the money truck, I didn't have to go on the road. And it just became this thing where I just, I just started, I just sort of became a full-time uh, writer and would still do stand-up occasionally. You know, if somebody asked me like a coffee shop on a Friday or Saturday night or something, I'd, I'd go and do stand-up and I loved it. But it just became this thing that it's, it's, it's sort of, it, it sort of gradually um, fell away, uh, you know, and then, and then it's also, if you don't do stand-up comedy every single night, you suck. It's, it's, it's like one of those things where it's muscle memory and, and you lose it so quickly. And, and, and so if you're not doing it and then you do it every, you know, three weeks or six weeks, you go up and you go, oh my God, this is so, this feels so uh, weird and, 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 and you got to get back into the rhythm. So it just, it just became this thing where I was like, ah, I don't really feel like going up and sucking tonight. And, uh, and so it just became this thing that fell away from me. I also, um, you know, stand-up comedy, it attracts a lot of people who are uh, kind of damaged and broken. And, um, you know, and I'm not, I'm not excluding myself from that, but it was, uh, it's a world where you've got to be really committed uh, to doing that. And I, um, you know, I went through a lot of, I went through a lot of stuff. I had a lot of, a lot of my friends. I mean, I, I, I've had, I think seven friends commit suicide. Stand-up comic just attracts a, you know, dark element. And I, um, there was a part of me, my nickname in my twenties with all my comic friends was Crazy Al Watt. Okay, so these people are all out of their minds. <laughs> And I, I was the crazy, <laughs> I was the crazy one. And I think it was because, at that time, I was really depressed, and um, you know, just really, really not in a good place. But I talked about it all the time. I was like, I, I, I'm like, I'm really, really not doing good today. And I think it made them uncomfortable, some of them. And so I got the nickname Crazy Al Want, and. Um, you know, in retrospect, I think that it was that part of me that um, kind of, I, I think I had a survival instinct that was like, I, I, I would rather be um, comfortable in my own skin than chase after some, you know, illusory 
um, fame or whatever. And so I, you know, I, anyway, I did, I just, I, I was kind of, that part of me was kind of okay letting go of stand up and uh, meeting a great woman, getting married, having a kid, um, becoming a writing teacher as a, uh, which has turned out to be probably something that I'm, uh, you know, was born to do. And, 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 you know, I, I love being a writer and I, and I, and I love, I just, just published a new novel last week that came out and, um, but, um, yeah, yeah. Stand up is, you've got to really want it badly. When you see people who are successful stand-ups, you're seeing people who have sacrificed probably a tremendous amount to, um, be doing what they're doing and i have a lot of respect for 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 stand-up comics and uh um and and compassion they're 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 my people i love them and i uh i really feel a kinship with comics now i feel like there's there's a brotherhood and sisterhood with comics that nobody else understands with stand-up comics nobody i don't think anybody understands that because you know when i talk to people who aren't stand-up comics they you just even the language when they they talk about them there there there's an exotic quality to stand up comics when people talk about them they're 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 they people are fascinated with stand up comics um i wish i had an ending to this uh the sentence <laughs> which came first the comedy or the writing the or comedy comedy well i mean the comedy you write your own material but i was I was in I was in high school, and I went to the School of the Arts in Toronto when I was um, about seventeen or eighteen, and they had amateur nights on Monday nights at Yak Yaks in Toronto, and I um, I just started going there on Monday nights, and I was terrible, just bombing you know every Monday night, but I wanted it so badly, and I remember I remember there was a guy who would he would throw up before he went on stage every time. And um, I don't think that was that uncommon. It's, 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 it's like, it's bizarre that this thing is so terrifying to do, and yet it's a compulsion. And, and I, I, you know, if you really work hard at it, you start to understand the mechanics of a joke. And it, it becomes really addictive. Like there's no greater high than going on stage for 45 minutes or an hour in front of 400 people on a Saturday night and just killing where they're just eating out eating out of your hand you know it's it's it, it, and just getting one laugh after another it's just it's the greatest feeling in the world it's I get you know I get why people don't ever want to stop doing that you know but the beginning stages, I had someone that I knew. Stage. Yeah, I mean, for me, they yeah, they were. I mean, I can remember going to clubs with this person while they would do their acts, and maybe there'd be five people in the audience, and then I saw sure. the pain that this person went through <laughs> outside of there, yeah. and and that was their outlet for it, and then I got why they they were addicted to it, you know. Oh yeah, it's yeah. the great, it's the great. When mm -hmm. you when you when you start to get an act, and you start to yeah, you start to get laughs, and you start to get your stage legs, it's. It's really great. I mean, I get why people, you hear Jerry Seinfeld and Jay Leno say, we don't go on vacation. Vacation for us is going on the road. I get it. I mean, who wouldn't want to, you know, go out in front of 5,000 people and just kill 
and it's it's the best. But then at some point you were writing or learning about novel structure or or from the beginning. From the from beginning, the beginning okay. I always yeah, I always wanted to write stories. Okay. Yeah. And so at some point you must have had enough time to work on this novel that you eventually got to your lawyer friend who yeah. got to the publisher. Well, I mean, I never had a real job. I was I mean, I I I went on the road. I actually dropped out of high school three months prior to graduating because I got this one road gig. I mean, I was still on amateur nights, but the, the booking agent liked me and, and I had about, I had, I probably had about 12 minutes of material and I was, I was supposed to do 25 minutes at this club in London, Ontario. And so I, um, I wrote the, re I wrote my material on the bus on the way to this gig and I dropped out of high school so I could do this weekend gig. And uh, and then that was it. From there, I just started started getting some work and, and making a really meager living, but enough to just barely pay the rent. And, um, and, then, and then from there, it just sort of evolved. This was in the 80s when there were, there were so many comedy clubs opening and there was such a dearth of actual really funny people like there's a there's a there's a quote from I think it's Seinfeld he says in the 70s there were um a hundred comics and 10, 10 of them were funny and in the <laughs> 80s there were 10,000 comics and 10 of them were funny okay, okay. so funny yeah. is a rare commodity but in the 80s if you could even fake funny you could make a living not a great living but you could make a living and so I started making a living pretty pretty early on. I don't think I was funny for the first five years, but you can, you can fake being funny to, uh, to people too. I don't know why I'm going off on this tangent, but, but, uh, you know, the really great comics are, are, um, originals. Um, but I in the eighties, there were, you know, people were just sort of ripping off other people's personas or stealing their premises or, you know, there were a lot of hack, you, you, there were just a lot of hacks, a lot of hack premises, you know, airline material or the difference between, you know, cats and dogs or, you know, men and women and, and just sort of hackneyed premises that are, are going to always elicit laughter. But, but it, you know, just because you're, just because you're getting laughs doesn't mean you're funny. So then once the book was picked up, you thought, okay, well, then maybe this writing thing will become more of a habit. And how did you then train yourself to show up every day to write? Or maybe it wasn't every day to write. It was every day and there was no training. It's just, it was just passion. I just um, always, I just loved writing. I just love, it's, it's, um, it's harder now because my schedule has gotten so busy with teaching and family and, and uh, you know, making you know i'm setting up my next movie to make but uh i just get up early now and write i get up before my son gets up and and get to work but i i, I don't know i i i uh i i can't say that it's not difficult and that i don't get distracted but i've never i i love writing and i work hard so i i i, I try and write every single day i definitely wrote every day for you know the first 15 years um you know before i got married and had a kid you know so 20 years 
<laughs> so you grew up in Canada yeah. and you grew up on a farm? Yeah, I grew up on a strawberry farm. Wow. And so was that part of your daily routine to get up early and you're tending to these berries or what? <laughs> <laughs> tending to the berries. Well, the berries, the berries, <laughs> strawberry so season is about three and a half weeks. <laughs> okay. So it doesn't last very long. <laughs> Um, but no, but I was I was a kid then, so I was uh, I mean I wrote then, but I I, I wasn't writing every day. Um, I, I I probably started writing when I was about fifteen or I I I remember the first time I really realized I I wanted to write was in the sixth grade. I had a teacher named Mr. Bell Smith, and he said he had us write a five chapter novel about being shipwrecked, and um, it was the first time I really lost myself and my imagination and created this whole world on a on a desert island this guy on a desert island who befriends a you know a lion and 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 i thought this is amazing i didn't know i could do this and uh um and then and then and then was shocked that that was the last time any teacher ever asked us to be creative and, but but it, it, it activated this yearning in me for uh, this desire to tell stories. And so I would write little plays and, you know, I'd write jokes and stuff like that. And I'd watch, you know, the, the, the Tonight Show and, and see these comics come out. And it just seemed like the most amazing thing. This dude comes out or this woman and makes you laugh. You're just sitting at home watching this tube and this guy and you're laughing for five minutes and he's you know there's there's no you know there's there it's just magic how, how, do, how do you do that and and uh and so that was that was something that i, I wanted to do but it, it was always it was always uh, storytelling and um and and comedy and um yeah when did you come to los angeles uh i came to los angeles in 94 january 1st Remember, I played the uh, the Hyatt Hotel in Indianapolis uh, for New Year's Eve, and and then and then flew. I, I'd been living in New York. I went back to Canada, and, and then I flew here, and uh, I was here 17 days before the uh, the big earthquake, mm. which was uh, I remember it. Yeah, and so I'd been here for two weeks, and I thought, what the hell are mm. these people doing out here? <laughs> You've got to be insane to live here, because I it just I I didn't realize that this doesn't happen every two weeks. I I just figured this was a regular thing, and um and and so I you know I seriously considered leaving. But then again, you know that's the addiction. It's like I I don't want to give up this this dream, so uh, you know so I stayed. But a lot of people did leave after the uh, the earthquake. Yeah. Yeah, I remember it. So were you then going to the comedy store or these different places to play? Yeah, yeah, the improv, mostly the improv wow. and the Laugh Factory. Wow. Yeah, yeah, some managers brought me out here and, and um, yeah, I, I did a little bit on Seinfeld and, and that was my one acting job. At some point though, you then make the decision that you're going to do the writing and, and the books and the courses. When did you write the 90 Day Screenplay book? Uh, the 90 day the 90 day novel came out in 2010 the 90 day screenplay was uh, I don't know maybe 2012 13 something like that okay is there a chapter in, in the 90 day screenplay book that is most contested or people have the most questions about one part of the process I'm not really aware of anything being particularly 
contested. I get a lot of people who love it. <laughs> but um, it is, I think, different than a lot of the screenwriting books out there. Um, and I think it's... Um, my perception of it is is that it's it's very much about process and and less about result and i think that when we lose ourselves in the process the results can take care of themselves and um one of the things that um that i teach here's my cat i don't know if you're picking that up on the, um there's captain uh but one of the things that is that i talk about is uh, how dilemma is the source of uh, the story. And a lot of writing books talk about the dramatic problem. And um, the implication for, with that for me and, and why I, I was uh, resistant to a lot of the writing books that I read is that um, problems are solved. They're intellectual. You solve a problem. Dilemmas are resolved through a, sh through a shift in perception. And so something I, I sort of, I, I didn't discover this, but I sort of drilled down into it, is that the source of our story is our protagonist dilemma. And a dilemma is a problem that can't be solved without creating another problem. You know you've got a story when what your protagonist wants is impossible to achieve based on their current approach or their current identity. Okay, in other words, it's going to necessitate a shift in perception. Okay, they're going to have to become a sort of new person, so to speak, by the end of the story. So, um, um, you know, like when you think about problems, you think about like, uh, I have a flat tire. I call AAA. They solve my problem. Okay, not an interesting story. But if I have a flat tire and I'm out in the desert and I call AAA and this guy, and I'm dying of thirst and this guy drives out to the desert uh, and it's the guy who's sleeping with my wife. Now I've got an interesting story. Now I want to kill the man who's here to save my life. Okay, so when you can connect to your protagonist's dilemma, then you've got something to work with. The dilemma is the source of your story. And if you look at any great story, you've got a clear dilemma. Okay, and when you can connect to that, then, then you've got something to work with. So that's one of the things that I help writers with is understanding the dilemma, but it's a more holistic way. You know, it's, it's, not, like, it's not like, let's figure out your, pro, uh, your premise. Um, the premise is born out of the protagonist's dilemma. Okay, and so it's, um, I just think it's, 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 for me, it's a more organic uh, way of working. And then you start to see how plot emerges out of the character's struggle. Okay, so when, when I start to, and, and I'm not talking about intellectual, intellectualizing the dilemma because, because you can't, problems are solved, they're intellect, you can't figure out, when you try and figure out your protagonist's dilemma, uh, you get stuck. But when you start to connect to, your, to the experience of the dilemma, all sorts of images and ideas and situations start to emerge to uh, support that. And, and, and so that's sometimes people call that the brainstorming uh, 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 part of the, 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 the process. And so the, the first part of the 90-day screenplay is just doing a lot of free writing, imagining your character or your protagonist in relationship to other characters. And before you start to put a framework around it or start to uh, insist on any kind of structure for it. Do you think some people get very confused 
thinking their dilemma is their problem and it's not? Like when you were talking to the prisoners, were they very clear about what the problem was in their story? Maybe you didn't get into all that with them. I don't know if I got into that okay. with them. Um, I can't remember that. But um, sometimes writers get confused about the difference between problem and dilemma. And, um, you know, a, a problems are solved. So, the, like, I, you know, if, if I said, well, that's, that, that's solvable. Uh, it's not a, um, it's, it's an aspect of the dilemma. You know, like if, if in other words, here's, let's, let's, a part of the story could be that I, I, I get a flat tire and I have to uh, get my flat tire fixed. But the dilemma is, is, in other words, there's a, I'm jumping all over the place here. There's a movement to a scene. And so if a scene begins with um, a problem, like I got a flat tire and at the end of this, at the end of the scene, I get my flat tire fixed and nothing else happens. We don't have a story. What has to happen is by the end of the scene, I can get my flat tire fixed, but something else happens that's going to lead the story in a new direction. In other words, my dilemma wasn't the flat tire. The dilemma is my false belief about what the flat tire means. I don't know if that makes sense, but in other words, our, 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 sometimes here's where writers get stuck. Writers think when, when you hear the term dramatic problem, dramatic problem, you assume or you may assume that it's your job to figure out your character's solution to their problem. Einstein says you can't solve a problem at the same level of consciousness that created the problem. In other words, it's not difficult. It's impossible. You're never going to figure out your protagonist's transformation. But what, in a, so, so what you don't want to do is you don't want to think that your character is, is, has a clean line from the beginning to the end of the story. You, want, you need to understand that your protagonist is going to die at the end of Act 2. They're going to die to their old identity. I don't mean they're physically going to die, but they're going to die to their, 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 they're going to be forced to surrender the meaning they made out of their goal. When Jimmy Stewart leaves Bedford Falls, then he'll have a wonderful life. The end of Act 2 is, my life is worth, I'm worth more dead than alive. Okay, so he dies to his old identity. He, and you know, it's, it's, it's a great moment where he jumps off the bridge. He's, he wants to jump, he wants to commit suicide. He wants to jump into the icy water. And I, I love this image because uh, Clarence jumps into the icy water. And so the action is the same. This, yeah, nobody ever questions this, but he, he, he jumps in to save somebody else. So he doesn't, he doesn't die. He's, you know, he's reborn. And that's the beginning of Act 3. Okay, so then I'll give you my version of a, a marginalized story voice okay. dilemma versus a middle class one. Okay. Marginalized one would be a little girl wants to go to a birthday party, but her, the friends in the neighborhood, the mothers know that her mom cleans houses right and they don't she's nice but we don't really know her dear i'm so sorry and the middle class one is someone's applying for colleges but it turns out most of her friends are getting accepted into another one and she's not sure if her gpa is good enough to get into that one okay and so she's like worried that oh my gosh i'm gonna lose all my my good high school friends and what's gonna happen to my standing in that sort of group got it so these are like seeds of a story mm -hmm. right to two two Okay, so, uh, so tell me, what's your question? 
My question is, are the stakes higher for the author with the marginalized voice, where that means non-inclusion into a group, whereas the other one, the middle class one, is more worried about just maybe losing sort of footing and maybe losing touch. Are well, the stakes higher for one versus the other? I think that, I, I don't think of stakes, I mean, gosh, I, I don't know how to answer that question because I don't think st the, the stakes are about um, the 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 actual situation. The stakes are really about the ability for the writer to convey a sense of you know um, urgency or anxiety. In other words, um, yeah, I, 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 but that that's not. We're not really talking about dilemma. We're just talking about stakes. The stakes should always be life and death in every story. They're always life and death. If Jan Brady doesn't get a date with Tad Hamilton, she will absolutely die. Stakes are always yeah. life and death. Mm -hmm. If they're anything less than life and death, we don't care at all. We don't care at all. Got it. Okay. You know, so, so, but, but if you want to talk about uh, dilemma, there are two ingredients to a dilemma, as I see. So a, a dilemma is a, 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 a problem that can't be solved without creating another problem. And when you connect to your dilemma, you're, you're connecting to the aliveness in your story. Um, there are two ingredients to a dilemma, a powerful want, a powerful desire, okay, and a false belief, a misperception of myself or the world. Okay, and so when Sally loves me, then I'll be complete. Okay, now we got that's the big that's the beginning of the story. I got to get Sally to love me in order to be complete. Do you see a powerful desire? If Sally doesn't love me, my life will be unimaginable. And the false belief is that Sally will complete me. At some point, so so we got a powerful desire. Remember that story structure is desire, surrender, transformation. We got to surrender. I mean, I'm going to have to let go of the meaning I make out of my goal. As long as I believe that Sally's love completes me, I will forever be in bondage to Sally or my idea of Sally's love. Because, and, and, and the, the audience or the reader is gonna be disappointed if all that happens at the end of the story is that Sally loves me. That's gonna be a really, dis if, if Jimmy Stewart left Bedford Falls at the end of It's a Wonderful Life, we would be disappointed because that's not what the story's about. The story isn't about, the plot is about, will Sally love me? The theme is about um, uh, completeness. What does it mean to be complete? Oh, it doesn't mean completeness comes from outside of ourselves. It comes from within. Okay, so that's, that's a dilemma. The dilemma is, what is it? The theme is completeness. You know, if you're doing a story about um, justice, let's say I'm in prison. And, uh, or freedom. Let's say, let's say this is a story about what does it mean to be free. So if I'm in prison and I want to, uh, I want to be free, I might believe at the beginning of the story that um, when I escape, then I'll be free. Okay? And that's, that's the dilemma. That's the dramatic question. Uh, and then through the story, I might actually succeed in escaping and discover that I'm still not free. That could be the dark night of the soul. Let's say I let's say I escape with another buddy and we're shackled and we and we get away and then he trips and you know twists his ankle and now I've got to decide you know I really want to be free but now now I got to take a blunt instrument 
and kill my buddy and you know what I mean and get a okay and now now am I free you know what I'm saying and they're chasing after me and and so in my in my attempt to become free in your protagonist's attempt to get what he or she wants they move increasingly away from their desire okay so my attempt to be free moves me further away from freedom leading to the end of act two where I have to let go of the meaning I made out of my goal i.e. when I escape prison then I'll be free end of act two I discover that free true freedom comes from within and I might discover at the end of the story that uh, freedom might involve um, going back to prison taking responsibility for my crime okay and so that's the shift in perception so that would be so so desire I want to be free surrender I have to let go of the meaning of my false belief of what freedom means and transformation I have a new understanding of freedom I think you'd use the social network in another video I watched oh you yeah. want to use that as an analogy as well because I found that interesting oh oh yeah yeah I think I thought gosh that was a long time ago so so the dilemma of the social network is is the is the tension between uh, integrity and ambition okay so if I'm really ambitious and I want to make a billion dollars I um I, you know, it's the same kind of thing. I set out on this, this, this quest, um, but did I steal this idea from these two gorgeous twins? <laughs> and uh, they were quite handsome. Yeah, uh -huh. and uh, and and so, um, and I, and that's what the, that's what the social network explores. Every single scene examines the dilemma of integrity of integrity versus ambition. Okay, and so he's driven by his ambition. What do I want? I want to succeed. What do I need? I need to do the right thing. Okay, and I think I think it's kind of an ambiguous ending, but it leaves us with that question. Sure. You know, does the end uh, um, satisfy the means, or does it? Yeah, something like that. Do you think most writers know what their story really is about? I think at some point it's it's always going to be kind of a mystery. Like, I don't know that we have to know what it's about, but I think we have to be curious as to what it's about. Okay, and that's that's the difference because when when I I, I um, when I'm working with writers and and we work with something I call the story structure questions, and I've got a series of of uh, experiential questions. Okay, so they're not, and and people say oh, I, I I answer these questions like they're not meant to be answered; they're meant to be inquired into. And so um, I think James Brooks said that he didn't know what As Good As It Gets was about, I think, until he watched it with the first audience. And that's when he realized what it was about. So um, I don't know that we have to know in some fundamental way what the thing's about. I also think that it can change. Um, but if we're not curious about the theme at some point, the story can get away on you. The plot can get away on you. You can become so uh, seduced by your by your plot twist or by by the by the movement of the plot that you can uh, this the, the 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 theme can become untethered, and you can lose the why the story wanted to exist in the first place. I work with writers sometimes, and and they will write a really great messy first draft. And then they'll give their draft to their best friend to read. And their best friend will go, I really like um, chapter four, six, and seven, but I didn't really like chapter 
3, 9, and 10. And so they'll take out the chapters they didn't like. But they, in other words, they will abdicate authority over their work to somebody else. They'll, 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 and, and this is what I'm always trying to help writers understand that, that you know your story better than anybody else, even though you don't know your story. Because there's something that you want to express that's valid, okay? It's valid. And just because the story isn't doing everything you want it to do or it's not totally working, doesn't mean that what you have to express on a fundamental level isn't valid. And so the job is to stay with the process. You know, stay with the process. Don't get into the result. Don't go, oh, okay, if I get rid of chapter nine and 10, nobody's gonna know that. No, there's something, you need to ask yourself, what was in chapter nine that you were trying to express? And let's start to cull that, let's start to cull that so that we can um, find that through line because everything we write either belongs or is leading us to what ultimately belongs in the story. So if I throw something out without asking, without really being curious why I'm throwing it out, I'm doing myself a disservice. And so I'll see people who will take these, they'll have these wonderful, messy first drafts, and then they will start to, uh, it'll just start to get worse and worse because they're not trusting the reason they wrote the thing in the first place. Or they'll give it to an agent. An agent will say, it'll be more uh, commercial if you do this to it. Sometimes that can work, but sometimes what that, that you can kill the aliveness of, of something because you're, you're, you're giving it away. Have you been given notes about something, a story, a screenplay, and you were like, wait a minute, this is going to kill the aliveness to it. And you had to go back and say, well, how do I make these changes that they want, but keep that right. spark to it? That's tough. That is tough. That is tough. And that, that's, that's the writer's job is to, is, is, is to take the spirit of the note without taking the, um, the, the mechanics sometimes. Because, because um, you know, sometimes you're getting notes from an executive and they'll say, um, you know, I don't like this scene, it's not working, or you should take this out. And um, you've got, if you don't, if you're not connected to why you're telling the story, if you're not connected to the magic, then um, you, you, can, you can lose that magic by, uh, and, and what'll, here's what'll happen, is the executive will read the new draft and they'll go, this isn't working. And you go, but I just did what you asked me to do. Yeah, but a good executive will go, that's not what I asked you to do. I told you this wasn't working and now it's your job to go fix what I want you to fix, but I'm not a, you know, they're not a writer. So they're expecting you to do your job. And so, you know, there are a lot of really good executives who understand that when they're giving you a note, they're also expecting you to, um, you know, they're expecting some kind of alchemical process to happen so that you can distill the note to its nature and give them back something that's working, you know. It was like Charlie Kaufman, he, he, when he wrote Adaptation, he was adapting The Orchid Thief and they were expecting an adaptation of that novel. Charlie Kaufman is not in that novel, <laughs> okay? And so he, he, he distilled, he, he, he took that novel 
And then it went through Charlie Kaufman. And he wrote this really wonderful, brilliant, mad story. And when they got it, from what I understand, they said, what the hell is this? <laughs> and then a couple of days later, they went, oh, this is wonderful. But it took them a while, I think, to get on board and realize that he that that that's what they that's why they hired him because they were they were going to get his voice and his thing and so if we don't trust our voice um you know it's a challenge for the writers you've got to trust your voice in the midst of all of the fears of i don't want to lose this job i don't want to lose this gig i don't want you know i i, I don't want to disappoint uh you know these people um that, that you know that's part of it you know you're probably going to get replaced in Hollywood if you're a screenwriter. Doesn't mean that you did a bad job. It just means they're just they're just covering their asses. You think being a stand-up helped you come to peace with that, or maybe just because when you're up there, I'm sure it's you're basically naked almost. You're yeah. very raw, and you've got hecklers. You've got people with all sorts of agendas throwing stuff at you, metaphorically, physically, whatever. And you, I think at some point you you probably become more comfortable in that space. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm just assuming here. Uh, no, I think therapy did that, but I don't think oh. comedy did that. <laughs> okay, I thought maybe. I don't think comedy gave me a thicker skin. No, it didn't. Okay. At all. No. Okay. No. It, it, uh, no. <laughs> I, I, I would say yeah, therapy. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, and, and just realizing that, that it's... it's yeah, the reason I think that writers or anybody... Uh, I don't know where I'm going. This, I I think early on I made I thought as a writer my identity was tied to my creative work, and um, that's dangerous. That can that can really mess you up. That can make you a perfectionist. That can make you bitter. That can make you a victim. Um, and it's not. It's got nothing to do with my self worth, and so. Uh, in fact, I think of if you're a storyteller, that's that's a great um, luxury, and it's a privilege, and so you get to tell stories, and um, the stories aren't coming from if they're if you really want to tell great personal stories, you want to be connected to the universal. You want to be connected to why this is going to be relatable to other people. That's not going to make your work less personal. It's going to make it more personal, okay? Because you're going to be um, more willing to really get into the nitty-gritty of your struggle because you're going to understand the transformation. I don't know if that's... Does that make sense? Yeah, so when you decided that I'm still going to be creative but I'm going to almost have like, is it almost like having two lives? One is where you're human and the other one is where you're a creator who's having a human experience. I know that sounds so cliche, but, and then if somebody rejects me for my creator persona, that doesn't mean I'm a bad human. Well, I, yeah, I guess so. But I mean, yeah, yeah. Like it's, it's, it, it, it always sucks getting rejected, but writers are constantly being rejected. And it's just part of it. Like it just, the more you do it, the more it just rolls off your back. In other words, like, I'll give me an example. Let, let's say, let's say I write a romantic comedy and it gets into the hands of a guy who makes horror movies. And he goes, uh, we're passing on this. They're not passing on it because it lacks quality 
uh, or value, they're passing on it because they make horror movies. And that's Hollywood, is that, is that it, and, and I'm just using a, a broad generalization, I'm talking about genre, but, but you can write a script that, that may not speak to the person. That doesn't mean that the script doesn't have value. You hear about these scripts that, that, that are in, in development for five, 10, 15, 20 years, and they finally get made, and then they win an Oscar. It's because somebody believed in them and they could, they had a vision and they could see what that thing wanted to be. It's difficult sometimes to read a screenplay and be able to see what the movie's going to be. You know, so um, you've got to, you've got to believe in yourself. You've got to believe in yourself. And, and uh, I think it can be easy if something gets rejected. Here, here's the other thing. If something's getting rejected a lot, you also need to have the humility to go, well, maybe this isn't uh, doing everything I need it to be doing. Okay, and so that's where craft comes in. That's where you really have to understand uh, what you're trying to do. And, and sometimes, the, you know, you can hear writers, the, the, there's, there's, a, uh, there's a fine line between being stubborn and, um, and having the humility to be teachable. You know, because if, if you don't have the humility to be teachable and and hear why something's not working for them, you can kind of get stuck. And then going back to working in the, the maximum security prison. Right. I, I, know I, keep I didn't do it. a lot of uh, okay. that. Okay, I know, but it's just so fascinating to me. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah, All yeah. right. So the, the two times or whatever, however many times, sorry. You saw that humility in them. How easy was it to have them as sort of a captive audience? Sorry, that's wrong. Let me just scratch that. I guess what I'm trying to say is so many people, they go to a great school and they've kind of been groomed all their life that they're like this golden child and right. they're great and they're going to come and, and, and everything they do is fantastic. And that's great. They have this wonderful support system. Right. And then I think in some sense that can hurt them here in this industry because it's a rude awakening when someone doesn't, agree with their work doesn't mean they don't like them personally. Right. So when you saw people that maybe had either been born with more humility or had been forced to adopt that attitude. I think this, this business will, uh, you will either, you know, become humble or bitter. <laughs> so because you're always going to be getting rejected constantly, constantly getting rejected. But it's not yeah, it's not personal. I'm not sure if I'm answering your question. Oh, it's great. And I love it. Where, where, where does the road diverge for the humility? Oh, um, I agree. I totally agree with you. So. Well, I think it's just, I think it's just, you know, uh, I don't, I don't know if you can teach that. I don't know if you can, I, I, I think it's just, humility is going to make you a better writer because you're going to, you're going to, it's going to give you humanity. You're going to have compassion. You're going to, you know, it, in other words, humility is just, it's going to make your job easier because you're going to also have compassion for yourself. You know, it's, it's going to, it's going to widen your perspective. You're going to, um, you're going to see why your writing isn't doing everything you want it to do. Because as writers, I think we've all got blind spots. We don't, you know, William Goldman talks about how you come up with these ideas and you can see this movie in your head and then you start to write it. And once you start to write it, these ideas become earthbound. 
you know, they're earthbound. They're not, they're, it's, it's really hard work. It's really hard work to create a great story. And, um, and I just think humility is just something that if, 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 if you don't have it, you might want to uh, find a way to, you know, you're going to become humble in Hollywood just by virtue of the rejection. But what you, I don't think there's a way to exercise humility, but I think there, 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 there is a way to, I think if you have um, compassion for yourself and for other people uh, and, and are gentle with yourself and, and have some, a, a healthy perception of rejection or an understanding that I'm not being rejected, it's going, it's going to lead to um, um, just a, a happier life. Why is it important that the hero experience false hope? Oh, uh, false hope is a very necessary point in the hero's journey, the protagonist's journey, because without it, there won't be a context for the surrender at the end of the second act. Okay, so let me give you an example. Let's say, um, oh, I'm trying to think of a story. Well, let, 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 let's, let's just, Let's just say a character, let's say I want Sally to love me so I'll be complete, okay? The false hope is the moment where um, I have a first date with Sally and we kiss and yes, I'm gonna get what I want. But what I want is for, for Sally to love me, but the reason I want it is so that I'll be complete. Okay, so the false hope is, it's sort of like going to Vegas and putting a nickel in the slot and a dime comes out and you go, by midnight, I'll be a millionaire. I just doubled my money. And then the next day you leave town on a Greyhound. That's the, the false hope is the misperception the protagonist has about their situation. Okay, what the, 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 the false hope is where the protagonist is not yet aware that, that what they're struggling with is not a problem, it's a dilemma. They think they've got a problem. They don't. They've got a dilemma. Okay, and so so that's what the false hope is. Ah, interesting. Okay. Without the false hope, no context for the surrender. We don't understand what they're surrendering because the protagonist isn't surrender. I'm not surrendering my desire for Sally at the end of the second act. I'm surrendering. I, I'm letting go of the realization that as long as I believe that Sally will complete me. I'm, I'm screwed. Okay, so that's, I'm surrendering the meaning I make out of my goal. I'm not surrendering my goal. The goal never goes away. I never stop wanting Sally to love me. By the way, is this Billy Crystal's POV and When Harry Met Sally? Or no, 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 okay. no, no, no. I'm just, <laughs> sure. I'm sorry. No, no, no. no I, wasn't, I'm just, I was picturing them in the restaurant scene. And yeah, I, yeah, okay, yeah. no, okay. <laughs> I'm just using, just using, I'm just using right, Sally's. Sally, yeah. It's just, yeah. I always, I, I don't know why I was talking about Sally in my, Sure, it's like a codependent relationship, and you're you're thinking that this person's going to complete you, and and or just, whatever and, it yeah. is, it could be about if if the theme is if if the theme is freedom, you know, I was talking about the the prison. I have to let go of the belief that escape will lead to freedom. If it's justice, I have to let go of the false belief that. So the false hope. Let's say let's say my story is about justice. I want justice. They screwed me over. I'm going to get revenge. The false hope is yes, revenge is within my reach. Okay, that would be the, that would be the false hope moment. Uh, the surrender would be the realization that an eye for an eye 
leaves the whole world blind. Okay, so the end of Act 2, uh, there is no such thing as um, justice through revenge. You know, and then I might discover that justice comes through a wider perspective, perhaps compassion, you know, understanding my situation in a new way. That makes sense. So, so the, the the false hope is is where I believe I, that I, I believe that through revenge, I will uh, justice will be meted out. Can we talk about backstory for the character? Sure. Is it crucial? Not so much with a uh, screenplay. Well, backstory so is crucial with every story. I mean, I can't think of a story that doesn't, um, you know, need some kind of backstory. So. Um, but yeah, the, 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 one of the first things I, I do when I'm working in the 90 day novel or the 90 day screenplay, the first month of the workshop is spent imagining the world of your story, which includes the backstory. Okay. So I, I, I they're, they're not a separate thing. In other words, I, I want to lose myself in the world of the story so that the, because backstory is going to become exposition, right? So, 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 um, it's necessary. It's sort of like looking at a painting. If you, you ever see those $49 paintings when you drive out to like the airport or something, you, they're, they're selling them on the sides of the roads and it's a landscape, but it's completely flat because it's one coat. There's no undercoat. Okay. So the backstory is the undercoat. You can't really see it, but you can feel it. You know, so like if you, if you're, if you're going to have a, a snowy landscape, your undercoat, you're going to be using, you know, umbers and, and, and browns and, and dark colors so that we can start to experience the depth of the snow. You can't, if, if you just paint it white, it's, 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 it's just, it just looks, uh, it's just going to look cheesy. So that, that's, that's the more work you do in uh, really connecting to your character's backstories, uh, the more it's that that Baxter is going to start to get infused into um, into the the character's experience. It's going to be it's going to be in the dialogue. We're going to be it's going to be in the flavor of their language. It's going to be in um, the detail of their um, uh, uh, you know of their uh, uh, it's going to it's it's going to be in the detail. In terms of revealing that backstory to the audience. How, how much can you hold that back though? I, I realize maybe then the writer needs to know that backstory right away, but in terms of revealing it to the audience, let's say in a film, it, how much of, how effective is it to really hold back that backstory or should it be revealed right away? Because I was thinking like, I just saw this movie, The Mustang, and he's in prison and you don't totally know why he's there. Right. You're just seeing his life and he's working with these horses and Bruce Stern is like this guy that's kind of pushing him around. He's in charge of the horses. Right. And then you finally realize what it was that landed him there, who this woman is that comes to visit him for these visitations and right. the tension between them. Okay. But it was really great because you didn't know it mm -hmm. for the longest That's time. a great question because, because the, the, so you're talking about mystery and, and a lot of the times writers confuse mystery with um, withholding essential information to move the story forward. In other words, don't like if you're if you're writing a mystery, you don't want to confuse your reader or your audience or you don't want to withhold something that we actually need to know. What makes a mystery really fun is that you gave us all of the essential information, but 
in a way where we weren't able to put it together. And we experienced the delicious surprise of, oh my God, that, uh, that makes perfect sense. And, 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 and there's some kind of transformative experience. Um, but if you're writing a mystery and, 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 and you're withholding something um, essential for us to understand uh, what, needs, what happens next, we're just going to be confused, you know, or we're going to be annoyed. No, it was done in a way that... No, no, I'm not saying the Mustang. I'm saying they probably did it... Yeah, they did, did it beautifully, did, yeah. Did it in beautiful oh, way. So, so I'm saying that um, there is... there is the, the goal with backstory is to find ways to dramatize or disguise exposition. Okay, you want to dramatize it you, you want, or, or disguise... I mean, if you're dramatizing it, you are disguising it. But... Um, like I used to do an exercise with my student. I haven't done it in a long time, but we go around the table and I'd say, uh, okay, uh, Jack and Jill went up the hill to fetch a pail of water. Now, who, what's Jack and Jill's relationship? And the first person say they're brother and sister. Okay. And second person, how old are they? They go, uh, they're 25. And why are they going up the hill to fetch a pail of water? Why, why do they need the water? The house is on fire. Okay. And then I go, okay, now that's all, that's all exposition. Now I want you to write a dramatic scene that includes all of that information. But you can't say Jack and Jill are 25 years old. You've got to find a way to convey that information, that backstory or that, that exposition um, without us knowing that. Or the backstory would probably be why they're going up the hill to fetch a pail of water. So we need to, as they're on their way up the hill, we need to, you want to find a way for us to experience that their house is on fire. Does that make sense? It does, right. So so you're you're showing, not telling. You want to show and not tell. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, we want to experience it. We want to you know, filmmaking is is um, taking the audience uh, through a series of experiences that lead to a transformation. What's a reluctant hero? A reluctant hero. Uh a reluctant, are, are you talking about the end of act one where I always talk about how our protagonist makes a decision at the end of the first act and that there's reluctance around this decision. And the reluctance is a function of the dilemma. In other words, if, uh, if, you're, if your protagonist doesn't experience reluctance, we're not going to understand what the decision means. Okay, so I'll give you an example. Let's say Romeo and Juliet. The, um, the, the, the inciting incident is Romeo sees Juliet. Okay, so, oh my God, I'm in love. And then the opposing argument, which is something I talk about in the workshops, is where we understand the dilemma. Oh my God, I'm in love with the enemy of my uh, father. Okay, I'm in love with the family, the family member. That's the enemy of my family. And then the decision is to in spite of that, go and stand under Juliet's balcony and pro profess his love. So he's not reluctant to profess his love. He's reluctant to get killed by her father. Okay, so the reluct. So if that if that's what you're asking me, the reluctant here, because that's I think in terms of how can I find my protagonist's reluctance at the end of Act Two. The reluctance isn't about getting what I want. The reluctance is about what it will mean if I try to get what I want. Okay, so 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 um, Romeo uh, wants love. He doesn't want to get killed. 
that's what keeps, that's his dilemma, right? I want true love, but true love will mean, could mean the death of me, okay? If you can find your protagonist's reluctance at the end of the first act, okay, with, with regards to this decision, you're going to be connected to your, the, the tension, your protagonist's dilemma. Your story is gonna build in meaning as it progresses. Okay, because that's our goal as storytellers is we want each page to be more interesting than the last page because the story is building in meaning. Okay, so as Romeo and Juliet move toward this climax, the story becomes more interesting. We become more invested. The stakes start to rise because of the uh, struggle that he's having between what he wants and what he needs. Okay, I want, you know, I... I, I, I uh, uh, so, so you think about any character, they, they, what they want is always outside of their, themselves. It's always outside of themselves. I want, um, you know, I want a pony. And what they need is always within. It's connected to the, the, the why they want the pony. When I get a pony, then I'll be popular. You know, I want, uh, I want to believe in God. Why do I want to believe in God? Because then I'll, then I'll be safe. Okay, so I want to have faith. What do I need? I need to trust. Okay, does that make sense? So like you, you see, you see uh, that's the dilemma of faith is, you know, give me evidence, then I'll believe. Doesn't work that way. That's every story your protagonist is struggling with a dilemma. And a dilemma is a powerful want and a false belief. Those are the two ingredients. Okay, so I want to believe, uh, uh, but I don't trust. And, and then your protagonist... Is, is, is because what we care about ultimately is not whether or not the protagonist is going to believe or have faith. What we care about is how your protagonist is going to reframe their relationship to what faith means. What are things you see most beginning writers sort of get wrong with writing an outline? Plot. So many writers think that writing an outline is figuring out their plot. Okay, and, 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 and it's, there's something very satisfying about coming up with a plot. There's something like, oh, oh, I've got it. But here's the problem, is that, again, Einstein says you can't solve a problem at the same level of consciousness that created the problem. Every story begins with a dramatic problem. And what happens, every writer's had this experience, you get really excited by your premise, and you, you start writing it, and you get halfway through, and then you get stuck. And then you're trying to make these characters interesting, but you feel like they're just, you know, pieces on a chessboard that you're trying to move around. and. And, and so it's important to understand that story structure is not about plotting. Story structure really is the DNA of your protagonist's transformation. And so what you really wanna do is you wanna to start to be curious about your protagonist's dilemma. Because when you, when you really understand the nature of their struggle, the nature of their dilemma, it is going, it becomes the source of your story and it starts to, it just starts to pay off in silver dollars. It starts to give you all sorts of um, ideas, images, scenarios that are going to um, become your plot, okay? But if you, so, so here's, the, here's what I would suggest. If you wanna come up with a great outline, uh, the first thing we do in the 90 day novel, in the 90 day screenplay is, is we spend one week imagining the world of the story and doing absolutely no outlining. Because what happens is, I would say our idea of our story is never the whole story. If you start to outline your idea of your story, you're gonna get stuck. 
you, it, it's going to become kind of a superficial thing. But if you allow yourself to lose yourself in your characters relating to other characters, they're going to surprise you. They're going to be alive and they're going to start to do things that you might not have imagined had you forced them into a prescribed outline. Okay, and so that's the first step is imagine the world of your story, allow your characters to be relating to each other in ways without imposing any structure, any outline whatsoever. Now that you've got all of this raw material and you start to see how they're relating, I'll give you an example. You would never, if you're writing It's a Wonderful Life, um, what does he want? He wants to leave Bedford Falls in order to have a wonderful life. The midpoint of that is where Mr. Potter offers Jimmy Stewart a job. That would never, if you're outlining your story, that has nothing to do with what Jimmy Stewart wants. Okay, he's, that's, Mr. Potter's the, the devil. Okay, he's the enemy. Why would he ever offer him a job? That wouldn't make any sense. But if you're imagining the world of the story and you come to the midpoint structure question, okay, which is uh, how is your protagonist, how does your protagonist experience temptation? It might occur to you that the devil would tempt him with a big job offer. Okay, and so um, that's where I feel like the way I teach story structure is different than, I've been told it's different than everybody. Um, and it's because there's no plotting at all. There's these structure questions that are experiential questions, okay? So we're exploring, we're exploring your, the, your protagonist's experience at key stages in uh, the, the journey. Okay, I hesitate to say the hero's journey because then people get this fixed idea. Oh, you're teaching the hero's journey. No, I'm actually not. I'm teaching, I, I, what I'm teaching is that story structure is an immutable paradigm for a spiritual transformation and that there are key stages that one goes through, including the, you know, the reluctance at the end of the first act, the, the, the false hope, which we just talked about. I'm talking about now the midpoint, temptation, and then suffering toward the end of the second act and then finally surrender at the end of the, 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 the second act. These are all experiences, reluctance, uh, false hope, uh, temptation, suffering, surrender. They have nothing to do with plotting and we're not talking about a reversal, you know, so. As someone already figuring out the ending in that, in that before they're beginning this outline, you, know, you said think about it for a week or whatever, think about the, the, the crux of the story. What is it really about? Are they also figuring out the ending or is it revealed sometimes after you do the outline? Uh, both. It can get revealed after you do the outline. I don't, I don't like the word figuring out because I don't think we figure anything out. But I have an exercise that I give my students to, um, uh, to experience the ending. And, 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 and it's a two-part exercise. I say, imagine your protagonist transformed at the end of the story. How is your protagonist relating differently to other characters at the end of the story? How are they relating differently than, than they were at the beginning? And what do they understand at the end of the story that they didn't understand at the beginning? Okay, and so, and then do that like every day. Do that for like 10 minutes every day. And, and what you, you start to plant a flag for your protagonist at the end of the story. You start to experience your protagonist at the end of the story. Character suggests plot. When you start to experience your character relating differently to the, the, these other characters, plot naturally emerges. But you're not figuring anything out. If you try and figure it out, you're going to get stuck. And then the second thing you want to do is you want to imagine the 
if you want to imagine the climax of your story, remember that we want our protagonist to be active through the whole story. You want to have an active protagonist. And the challenge for writers is that we tend to be sort of passive observers. We're always watching what's going on. And so when we sometimes put ourselves into the protagonist situation, sometimes the protagonist can be the least interesting character in the story. And so you want to find a way to make them active. Um, the structure questions are always going to make your protagonist active. Uh, at the climax, you want to think about uh, the difficult choice your protagonist makes between what he or she wants and what they need. Okay, it's a difficult choice. So that's an action. I'm making a choice. I'm taking, so your protagonist has to make an a, take an action between what they want and what they need. So, so uh, think in terms of like, let's say I want uh, justice, but I believe that uh, uh, when I get revenge, justice will be done. So what I want is, um, is actually revenge. Okay, I want them to pay. And what I need is to have compassion. Okay, so in other words, the end of the story, the climax of the story is we're going to reframe our relationship to the theme, i.e. justice. And so I'm going to put my protagonist in a situation where he's going to have to make a difficult choice between what he wants, revenge, and what he needs is compassion. That's, in other words, if it's not a difficult choice, he would have made the choice in act one. But it's a, it has to be difficult. And it doesn't have to be, uh, sometimes we call it the battle scene, the climax of the story, but it doesn't, it doesn't have to be an external battle. It can be an internal battle, okay? So, so it doesn't have to be, it can be an internal battle that gets dramatized. Like if you think about Holly Hunter in broadcast news, uh, the battle scene is her staring at a plane ticket on a bench at the airport because William Hurt says, um, here's the ticket and she's, she's, she, what she wants is there to be, um, is she wants there to be integrity in broadcast journalism. But what she needs is to have integrity. So when William Hurt crosses the line and fakes a tear in this interview, um, she's furious and she wants him to take responsibility for it so that she can go off to this exotic island for a week and, 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 and frolic with him. But he's not going to. And, uh, and so she is forced to make a difficult choice within herself. Am I gonna get on the plane with William Hurt or am I going to get back in the cab? And, and so that's, that's the battle scene, but it's still active. She, she makes the choice of getting into the cab. Uh, so you want to find a way for your protagonist to make a difficult choice between what they want, which is always outside of themselves, i.e. William Hurt, and what they need, which is always within. I'm going to do the right thing. What's the fastest way to learn screenwriting? The fastest way to learn screenwriting God, I, uh, I, 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 I don't know how to answer that question. Um, William Goldman says uh, it's screenwriting is something where sometimes your second or third one out is as good as like it's is as good as it's going to be. And um, but I don't know. Screenwriting is a craft. I mean, you know, they asked Mar Margaret Atwood was at a party once, and and some guy uh, she. Some guy said, what do you, she, he, she said, what do you do? And he said, I'm a heart surgeon. No, he said, I'm a brain surgeon. And, uh, and he said, what do you do? And she, she said, I'm a writer. And he said, oh, oh, you know what? Uh, when I retire, I'm going to be a writer. I'm going to write. 
And she said, oh, that's great, because when I retire, I'm going to be a brain surgeon. <laughs> I can totally picture her saying that, so too. So yeah. it's, uh, it's, it's, it's really hard work, and it's a craft. And I think that um, if, if we, ex I think sometimes, uh, there's another quote, I can't remember who the writer was, but he said, uh, um, writing is some, a writer is someone for whom writing is more difficult than it is for others. Well, I, I love the Margaret Atwood, though, because I remember hearing an interview where her family said to her, okay, it's going to be difficult for you to be a writer, but we have someone we can invite over and maybe they can give you advice. Right. And they were like a journalist at a paper and they said, right. most likely, likely you'll be um, writing, you know, wedding announcements and obituaries. <laughs> because at that time, that's yeah. what women did. And so right. she, I don't think that that was something that she wanted to do, but she kept with her poetry <clears throat> and, and these different things. That's and, what, you know, Francis Coppola, he went to film school. And then he said um, he was hoping that he was going to get to do industrial films. And that was going to be, the, and, and, and so, you know, and he worked for Roger Corman and he was, I, again, I think it's that humility. I think when we, when we sort of expect that we're supposed to have everything handed to us, nothing happens. But if, if, if we just put our nose down and, and just keep working, um, you know, great things can happen. And so... Um, uh, circling back to your question about, about, uh, n and now I'm blanking on the, Oh, the fastest question. way to learn fastest, screenwriting. Yeah. I, uh, <clears throat> the fastest way to learn screenwriting is writing 24 hours a day. Okay. <laughs> Except that's not true. Um, because if you don't have, I, I, cause that's what I used to do when I first started writing, I not 24 hours, but I wrote all day long and I didn't have a life and, and it wasn't, um, it wasn't until I kind of got a life and started to have experiences outside of comedy clubs and, uh, you know, going home and writing in my garret that I actually had something to write about. So, you know, Paul Newman says, to, he said, if you want to be a writer, get a couple of divorces under your belt, you know, get some, have something to write about and, and have something that you really care about. Um, you know, there are way easier to ways to make money than being a screenwriter. Woody Allen said, I made more money se selling my Fifth Avenue duplex <laughs> than I made in my entire film career. So it's, it's you know, if you want to make money, buy rental properties. Uh, but if you want to be a screenwriter, tell the stories that matter to you. Right. Well, I mean, if you were a comic, I'm sure there's a lot of material, even if it's just within, you know, you can have stories about cocktail waitresses and club managers and I mean so you, you there yeah, was something no, no 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 comedy comedy isn't about finding material comedy is about having a voice if you have a voice everything can be funny anything can be funny you know Mitch Hedberg's joke about uh he said I love rice I, I'm gonna butcher it but I love reading I love eating anything I love eating 2000 2000 of anything but in other words, like you don't have to, uh, you, if you go out and have a life, you're going to have something to write about. It's, it's, it's so, so um, yeah, if, if, I'm just, if I'm just in comedy clubs all day, yeah, I guess I could write about cocktail waitresses. But the joke is, the joke is about my point of view. So the way you're going to develop a point of view is engaging with the world 
and starting to experience what it's like to be a human being, then, because the joke isn't going to be about the cocktail waitress, the joke is going to be about your relationship to the cocktail waitress. Can writers hold on to their characters too tightly? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, in fact, uh, yeah, I'm always saying we got we got to hold it loosely. If 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 your uh, our idea of our characters is never the whole character. In fact, it drives me crazy when writers say, oh, my character would never do that. I think of drama as characters behaving uncharacteristically. Okay, so a nun robs a bank. You know, a bank robber saves a child on the way out of the bank. It's <clears throat> when you're writing a story or imagining the world of a story and a character does something that seems out of character, our job is to trust that and be curious about how to support it rather than going, my character would never do that. Characters can do anything if you can find a way to support it. So when someone says that and you challenge them, do you find that most writers back down or do they become so stubborn in their ideas of who that character is that they're, they're not willing to bend? Well, I don't, che I, I don't, I don't teach like that. So I don't, like I mean, if I if I if I have a if I have a a, a student who's um, challenging me, what 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 is there to challenge? I'm not. I'm just asking questions. It's the way I teach. It's the Socratic method. I'm not. I'm it's not. Draconian. Ever. <laughs> my my yeah. So I, I I would never have that with with one of my students. I would just say, uh, um, you know, why do you make that choice? That's a question I always ask my students. Why do you make that choice? You know, why, why does the character do that? And, um, and uh, it's either, in other words, you've got, we've got to be willing to explore blind alleys. So if, if we just assume that our story is going in, in, in a particular direction, then we might be um, denying ourselves, uh, you know, a lot of riches by not exploring the, the opposite way. I always say to, to my writers, if you know your character's gonna go left, you have to go right. In other words, if, if in this scene, Bill is gonna propose to Sally and Sally's gonna say yes, that's not an interesting scene. Sally, will you marry me? Yes, I will, Bill. That's not a scene. There's no meaning that gets conveyed. conveyed get, meaning gets conveyed through conflict or tension. And so we want to explore all the reasons why Bill can't get married and all the reasons why Sally is afraid to say yes. Then now, now we're going to understand what the scene's about. Because the scene isn't about Bill proposing to Sally. The scene is about Bill being afraid to work for Sally's father. You know what I mean? Will, will you work with, you know, Sally, will you work, will you marry me? And then we can spend our lives and I can write tone poems. And she's like, no, I actually, if, you, if I'm going to marry you, you're going to need to come work for my dad, the hitman. You know, now we've got a story. Okay, so you've, you've, if you know you're going to go left, go right. If you think your character's going to do this, hold that loosely. Because you're going to discover that, that, that you're, idea of your character isn't the, isn't the whole character. It's not that it's incorrect, it's incomplete. And, and, and the irony is that when you hold it loosely, your character actually becomes the most full version of the character you imagined. It's not gonna do exactly what you wanted it, it, he or she to do, but 
it's actually going to be, you know, the goal of storytelling is for the whole to be greater than the sum of its parts, not to be the sum of its parts. Why do writers get stuck? Why do writers get stuck? Well, um, you want to have a good outline. Writers get stuck sometimes because they, you know, they, they, they come up with a great idea and they immediately start writing the idea, which is fine. But at some point you're going to want to stop and um, do some kind of an outline. And here's the thing is that this is where writers will go, yeah, but I heard that um, Woody Allen never outlines and Charlie Kaufman never outlines. And the truth is they do. They probably just don't write their outline down, but they have been writing stories for such a long time and they've been, and they probably actually do have lots of notes, but they've been doing that. They have developed such an, an, an uh, you know, uh, story structures become second nature for them. They've become masters. And so they are naturally seeing, they're naturally connected to uh, this, this process. Uh, but I, I would think the main reason writers get stuck is because they're not working off some kind of an outline. It could be even the most, you know, rudimentary outline. But you have to have something to work from. Or here's the, the irony is that if you don't have an outline, you're actually going to lose confidence when you get to a point where you start to feel stuck. Because you're always going to get stuck at some point in the process. But if you've got some kind of um, uh, basic sense of your, the, the story structure, basic sense of the movement, um, you can actually get excited about the point where you get stuck because you know where the story is going to go. And that's where you can start to move it all. You can, you, you, you can kind of relax into the panic and let your characters speak to you and go in directions that you had never imagined that are actually going to often support where the story wants to go. Okay, that's why I would say, if you know you're gonna go left, go right. Okay, so, so, so if I know this is gonna happen, let me explore the complete opposite and relax in the fact that I'm, I'm gonna get to where I'm going. It's just not going, I'm not gonna arrive there in the same way I thought I was going to. Thinking of like the firm, yeah, you know, Tom Cruise, and then that moment when well, I don't want to give any spoilers away, but I don't think you're giving spoilers okay. away to a thirty-year-old movie. <laughs> if you haven't watched The Firm yet, so I'm just thinking of the living room scene where he comes back and and the the partners are there and and maybe I'm butchering. Oh yeah. Yeah. yeah, 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 right. So yeah, and right, mm -hmm. and, and totally different. This is where this is where Robert Town. I love this. Robert Town adapted The Firm, okay, and he uh, because I always thought I great novel except the ending felt like a total cheat because Mitch McDeer ends up on a sailboat with $10 million. And, and, and he's like in the Cayman Islands or something like that. And he's not a lawyer anymore, but he wanted to be a lawyer. He loved being a lawyer. And so Robert Town, he read it and he was like, well, wait a second. Why can't he still be a lawyer at the end of the story? but have a transformation. And so he, in the living room scene, it's been decades since I've seen this movie, but the living room scene is where he confronts the, is it the, is it the mobsters and the... I believe so. And, and I think firm. isn't his wife there too? In the, isn't, 
I, I, maybe I'm picturing but, two different stories. But what he does, what he basically does, is he says, "I'm a lawyer, and I work for you, the mob, but I also have all of your shit. And if anything happens to me, you guys are fucked." And so um, that's what you know John Grisham didn't do, but that's what makes Robert Town a genius is because he understands story structure. He understands transformation. I mean, John Grisham is brilliant. I love John Grisham, but that the ending of that felt like a cop out to me because um, he just he just go, goes off into into like like that ending is actually a tragedy. He's now going to spend the rest of his life in hiding in in the novel in the Cayman Islands in hiding with 10 million dollars. That sounds like a nightmare. I don't want to, I, who wants that life? But b because he doesn't get to, you know, he, he's got to be in hiding. But the way Robert Town did it was, was masterful because uh, it, he, he, he was true to the dramatic question that was about a guy who was an idealistic lawyer who takes a job for a dirty firm and ends up in, in, in a horror show and he find, and he manages a way to climb out and outsmart uh you know the villains brilliant